1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'd like to start reading in verse number 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And in my speech and my preaching, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God and a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Father God, I pray now that you would just fill me with your spirit and bless as we look at the word. Father, what a privilege to stand and preach yet again from this pulpit, the first time in 2012, and I just pray today that there would be nothing in my heart or in my mind uh, that would hinder your working today. Forgive me for anything that might stand in the way, and help me, Lord, today to just be a vessel and just use me for your glory today. And I I pray, Father, as we look at this, and and I I pray, Father, that that, uh, you'll just help me to not uh, be harsh, not come across that way. I pray people to listen to the end, and I pray, Father, that you'll just uh, enable us today to see the truth of of these thoughts. Uh, I'm worried today, Lord, that some might be offended, and I pray they won't be, and I pray, Father, that you'll just guide and direct. Fill us with your spirit to hear, uh, to speak, uh, to understand. Teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now that I've scared you all to death with that prayer, we'll move right along into today's message. You know, this is the start of a new year, and uh, (laughs) at the start of a new year, we oftentimes like to make resolutions. Brother Jim, I sat in on his uh, Sunday school class this morning, and he stole half of my sermon today about resolutions. He used half of my illustrations, so I don't know where we're going to go with that, but (laughs) the fact is we like to make resolutions, don't we? Start of a new year, we like to resolve that uh, we're going to change certain behaviors in our life or do better in certain areas of our life or fix certain things. It's not a new practice. Brother Jim made sure everybody knew about Jonathan Edwards, who I was going to share some of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Many of you have probably read the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan preacher. Some people believe, some people say, that uh, he may have been the greatest American theologian that has lived or that has been produced on American soil anyway. 
But Jonathan Edwards one day decided he was going to write down some resolutions, and I think he came up with 70. I think there's 70 on that list. And these were not just New Year's resolutions. These were just resolutions for his life. He didn't just put them down once like we would do with a New Year's resolution. He, he kept going back and looking at them. I can't remember if it was every week or whatever. He had some regular uh, systematic approach that he would go back and he would look at these resolutions. But some of them are pretty good. I won't share the one that Jim stole from me this morning. Uh, I'll share just a few of them with you. He said, uh, this was his resolution number four. He said, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Actually, sounds like the one you said. Is that the one you said? The one you said was similar to that. Number five, he said, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. We might not word it that way today, but that's one we could all do, isn't it? Number six, he said, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That's one I've always liked. That's a good one. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And if you'd like to see the rest of the 70 uh, resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, they are posted on our website, and I encourage you to read them. They're, they're a good thing for all of us to familiarize ourselves with. came across another list, a much shorter list, and only had three on it. Uh, on another uh, source, you wouldn't recognize the name. It was just some blogger that uh, blogs Christian topics. But he said uh, his resolutions for the new year was that there were three things he was going to give to God in the new year more than he did in the past year. His treasure, his talents, and his time. There's some good resolutions. All of us could resolve to give more of our treasure. All of us could give more of our talents. And all of us could give more of our time. Those are all good things. Sister Sue listed a few in our bulletin which you might have read, several that are mentioned there. Resolve that you will make every effort to read the Bible daily in 2012. We always talk about that at the beginning of a new year. We always try to provide you with reading plans, and there are some if you're interested in that, but oh, how I encourage you to do that. Read the Bible every day in 2012. Resolve that you will pray more, both privately and with your church family in 2012. Resolve that you will share Christ with somebody in 2012. We have an effort here reaching Randolph one, day at, one door at a time. And uh, we're gonna, that's one of the things we're going to talk about next Lord's Day in our membership meeting. It's something we want to expand in 2012 and, and really get it to pick up steam. And it might be an area where you can say, I resolve. I'm going to take part in that. Resolve that you're going to live in Ephesians chapter 4. Did you notice that in the list that she gave you there in the bulletin? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29. I think if we would just resolve that, Lord, I will live. In this passage, oh, how many things would be resolved. You know what Ephesians 4.29 says? It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. There's a good resolution. But what is good for necessary edification? That it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. How much, how many problems would be solved if we resolved to live in that passage of Scripture? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. And the last one on that list in your bulletin is resolved that you will not fall prey to spiritual entropy. And if you're wondering what in the world that is, should have been here Wednesday night, because we talked about it Wednesday night. Spiritual entropy. Resolve that you'll seek to grow in Christ. Not be satisfied with your level. All, all those things are good resolutions that we could implement in our life. And, uh, and all things that you might want to think about.
But this morning I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul made a resolution. He made a resolution in our passage that we read today, and it's in verse number two. He said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you're holding an NIV uh, version of the Bible this morning, it's uh, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I resolved. Now, the Apostle Paul there is specifically talking about his ministry to the Corinthians. and He's talking about the method that he had chosen. He was saying, I resolved that I was not going to get drawn off into philosophical conversations. And I was not going to try to change my methods and all that. I was going to focus on the word of God and Jesus Christ and him crucified. I know that's what it's talking about. But I want to pull it out of there today and apply it to us. Because I don't think we do any harm to the scripture to do that with this passage. I want us to think today about the fact that we need to resolve to know nothing in 2012 except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's my whole message today. One point today, resolved, I will know nothing but Christ in 2012. There's all kinds of ways I suppose we might be able to say that. One way we might be able to say that is, I will live like Jesus is more important than anything. Would you agree with me that's kind of synonymous? I will live... Like Jesus is more important than anything. I think that's basically what he's saying there. And I think probably all of us would be in agreement with that. How many of you would raise your hands this morning and say, yeah, that's true. I think Jesus is more important than anything. Would you raise your hands if you agree with that? I mean, most people would agree with that. If not, you would be chicken to not raise your hand anyway. Because you know that's what we ought to believe in. Jesus is more important than anything. And probably if I were to go around and ask, how many of you would say, I resolve to live in 2012, uh, Like Jesus is more important than anything. Or I resolve to live in 2012 uh, knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You'd probably all raise your hands. We'd agree with that, wouldn't we? Because we know it's, it's good. But for some reason we struggle with it when we put it into practice. At least I do. I'll be honest with you this morning. I'm preaching to myself more than you. We struggle with that. It's very easy for us to say amen to a generality like that. Very easy for us to say Jesus is more important than anything. It gets a lot harder when we start putting specifics on it. So I'm going to share with you this morning two specifics, and I'm going to see how many of you I can get to fall away from your agreement with me on this particular thing when we talk about the specifics, because these are jarring specifics. These are specifics that might make some of you mad. These are specifics that might seem to fly in the face of what perhaps you believe, but they are true. And they're just, I'm throwing them out there today just to get you to see what we're really saying when we say, I resolve to know nothing but Christ among you in 2012. Or Jesus is more important than anything. So let me just mention those two and just see if I can, if I can make you mad this morning. The first one is, if we're going to say Jesus is more important than anything, anything, then we're also saying this, are we not? Jesus is more important than my family. Are we not saying that? Jesus is more important than my family. And I know that's not a politically correct statement. And <laughs> I did not remember that our family life missionaries were going to be with us this morning when I came up with this particular point. But uh, don't get mad at me. Bear with me and you'll see that we're all on the same page here. Amen. 
Jesus is more important than our family. I know it's not politically correct, and I do know that there are ministries, theirs is not one of them, that would say to you, family is the first thing. I know there are preachers all around our country and even in our area who preach that kind of a message. Family is the most important thing, but it is not. Jesus is the most important thing. And if you don't think that's true, I want you to look at a particular verse of Scripture. This is the only one I think I'll have you turn to, but please turn to this one, because your eyeballs need to see it. You need to know this is not me saying this today. This is not just something I made up. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Turn there in your Bibles. I want your eyes on it as I read it to you, and as we mull it over in our minds this morning and chew on this one. This is one of those sayings that leaps out at us from Scripture and just jars our mind. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Are you there? Everybody there? Are you looking at it? Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if we're all honest with ourselves, every single time we get to that particular passage in the the gospel of Luke, we, we jump back a little bit. It jars us just a little bit, doesn't it? Jesus said that. Not Bill Johnson. Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is more important than anything. And that includes our family. Now, you and I know, you and I know that Jesus is not teaching there that we're supposed to hate our families. You know that, right? You know that. Jesus loves your family. Jesus loves my family. More than we do. Jesus loves in a way that it is impossible for us to understand. He, he wants the absolute best for our families. I think the best love that I can muster up and the best love that you can muster up is pretty inferior to the love that Jesus has. His love is perfect. It's infinite. It's unending. It's unconditional. It's, it's far more than we can. So we ought not to get all on our high horse this morning and say, wait a minute, Jesus is telling me I'm supposed to hate my family. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. I believe Jesus loved his family. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus made seven statements that are recorded for us in Scripture. He said things like, I thirst. He said things like, uh, oh my goodness, they all just went out of my mind. Oh, he said this one. He said this one, it's on my tie that you guys bought me. He said, it is finished. His tie says, paid in full, which is really what he was saying. Because that was the Greek word to telestai, which means paid in full. What else did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, But then he also said something. He looked at the Apostle John and he said, Behold your mother. And he looked at Mary and he said, Behold your son. Why did he say that? Because he loved his mother. And he was taking, here he was dying on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the whole world. And he loved his mother enough that he took care of her there. He loved his family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 7, Paul said, After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. If you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know that in that particular passage, Paul was listing a whole bunch of appearances that took place after the resurrection. He appeared to Peter and he appeared to all the disciples and he appeared to 500 brethren at once. And then he said, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. James. James was his brother, his physical brother. He had a few. Jude was another one. James and Jude and all of his brothers, the Bible says, had completely rejected him while he was on earth. They had nothing to do with his ministry. They were not believers. But then suddenly, after his resurrection and after he descended to heaven, James became this on-fire preacher. James became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. James became this great Christian. And the book of James we have in our Bible was authored by him. 
Jude, his other brother, wrote the book of Jude, which we have in our Bible. What happened? I think part of it is that Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection. And I'm always intrigued by that. Why did he appear to him? Why, why James? Why, why this person who has had really nothing to do with the story up to this point? Why is he singled out right there? I think, I think it's because Jesus loved his brother. And I think he went to him and talked to him afterwards. So I don't think Jesus is saying here at all that we should hate our families. I think he's talking about priorities. I think he's saying Jesus is more important than anything, and that includes your family. I think he's saying you need to resolve to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. I think he's saying you need to put Jesus first in every area of your life, including family. I just wish we could get our minds around the perfection that is God. I wish we could get our minds around the fact that there are no inconsistencies with him. That if he has told us to do something, if he has laid out a priority for us, it's the right one. We don't have to question it. We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to try to get our minds around it. We just have to do it. It's what he is saying is the right priority for us. You won't hurt your family by living your life according to that priority in 2012. You will not hurt your family by knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified in 2012. You will not hurt your family by making him the number one thing in your life, even above your family in 2012. But you will hurt your family possibly by coming up with your own set of priorities that leaves him out of it. He knows what he's doing. I wonder, parents, will you resolve this morning that you're going to love your kids enough in 2012 to put Jesus first? Wives, husbands, will you resolve that you're going to love your spouse enough in 2012 to put Jesus first, to make him the most important thing in your life? That's all of us need to resolve that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how many of our unsaved loved ones might come to Christ if we really got serious about this stuff? If we really got to the point where when they looked at us, they knew there was nothing more important in our life than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a game. It's not just a religious exercise. He is everything in our life. Can you imagine the result that it might have in families? So we agree with the general statement, don't we? Jesus is more important than anything. And hopefully we can see that that specific statement illustrates it. He is more important than anything, including our family. Let me mention another one. This one also might be mildly bothersome to some of you, but I, I think you'll see similarly that it makes sense. If Jesus is more important than anything, I want to suggest to you that he's also more important than your job or your career. And I imagine some of you right now are thinking, now listen here, preacher, hands off my job. I imagine some of you are thinking that. You're getting ridiculous. My job is how I support my family. I need that job. I need that job. But you see, I'd have to stop you right there. Because your job is not how you support your family. Jesus is how you support your family. And we have got to get that straight in our mind. Deuteronomy chapter 8, you should remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 22, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. The fact is, if Jesus is more important than anything, it stands to reason, does it not? That means he's more important than my career, my secular career, my job, those things that I do to earn money. I've been thinking lately about a, a thought. In America today, it's a very common thing, I think, to hear the question, what do you do? Have you ever had people ask you that question? What do you do? And I think it's common because in this country, we tend... Maybe it's not just this country, but it's the only one I know about, so. We tend to define ourselves by our occupation, don't we? 
If somebody were to come up to me and say, what do I do? My normal response is, well, I'm a database administrator at Hiram College, or I'm a pastor of a church in Randolph. Somebody might ask my wife, what do you do? And she'd say, I'm a bank manager at you know, U.S. Bank in Hudson. I'm a master therapist in Randolph. I'm a designer. You know, I'm a secretary. I'm a salesman. I'm a whatever. I'm a nurse. I'm a teacher. I'm a carpenter. I'm a construction worker. We tend to define ourselves by what we do. But I don't think it's a good question. I don't think it's an accurate question. I think a better question would be what Pharaoh asked the, uh, the sons of, of Jacob when they came to him in Egypt. Pharaoh said, what is your occupation? That's a better question. That makes sense. But not what do you do? And the reason I'm bothered by the question is because it tends to make us think that we are what we do. It doesn't define me. It doesn't define you. Our purpose in life is not defined by our secular careers, and yet that's, that's the way we answer the question. And that's what we're thinking when the question is asked. I remember a time, uh, some years ago, we were on a family vacation, and we were in Virginia, your favorite place. And we were having a wonderful time there. And one of the things that we did while we were in Virginia is we, uh, we signed up for a little tour of Civil War battlefields. And, oh, that was, that was cool stuff. They loaded us up on a bus, and they took us around, and this reenactor was there, and he... He took us to, and he just, he just made it come alive. He would stand there and reenact certain parts of the battles and describe for us what was going on. We're looking at a blank field over here, but he's describing all these armies, and he was excellent, and it, it was just coming alive. But then there was uh, the midpoint of the tour. We pulled into this restaurant, and when we pulled into the restaurant, we all piled out of the bus, and we went in to have lunch. It was part of the tour. And, you know, when you're on a tour bus like that with a bunch of people, you're just talking to your own little group. You're sitting there in a seat, and you're, talking, you're not paying any attention to these other people. But now all of a sudden we're in a restaurant, and we're in a table, one big table, and we're all looking across the table at each other. Now, that doesn't bother me. I would have been perfectly content to sit there and munch on my salad and not have any conversation. But some people can't stand that. They can't stand silence. And so there was one lady at the table who was that way, and she immediately jumped up and reached across and shook somebody's hand and said, My name is so-and-so. What's your name? And then she said it. What do you do? And this person answered the question. And then she started going around the table. And I thought, oh boy. And all the way around she went, and I could feel my toes curling as it got closer and closer to me. And finally she got to me and she said, and what do you do? And I just, I fended it off. I mumbled something about, you know, whatever I did as a secular thing. And I think I might have even said something about pastoring a church. That was it. And everybody nodded appreciatively. And it went to the next person. And she looked at this guy and she said, and what do you do? He was... An older guy than me, hardly possible to believe, but he was. He was also slightly heavier than me, which is also difficult to believe, but he was. I think he even had a grayer beard than me, if I remember correctly. She looked at him and she said, and what do you do? And he looked at her and he smiled and he said, well, you know, for many years I, and he said whatever he had done, I can't remember what his career had been. He said, but then one day I heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And he said, and since that day, since I placed my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ, he said, I have been a servant of his. I felt like dirt. I don't know about how you would have felt, but I felt like dirt. Because he had it right. I am not what I do. I am a child of the king. 
I'm a servant of the Most High God. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm a witness to Him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth and so is every one of us if we're a member of the family of God. You know, the Apostle Paul made tents, repaired tents. At least that's what we're told in the Bible. He was a tent maker. I, I don't believe, though, that there's a time in the Bible where he called himself that. I may be wrong about that. I didn't do exhaustive study, but I don't think he ever did. He called himself a servant. He called himself a bond slave. He said things like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't know. I've probably carried this too far. I've probably gotten almost ridiculous with it. I don't know. But the point I'm trying to make is that too many of us define ourselves by our secular careers when our secular career is really what enables us to be what we ought to be for the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant of his. Enables us to win our world for him. Enables us to be his disciple. I wonder what would happen in 2012 if we resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. If we got our priorities straight and started viewing our career is not what defines us, but just what enables us to serve the king. What would happen? What would happen? Let's find out. Jesus is more important than anything. Paul said the Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. And the wisdom of God. He's more important than anything. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. More important than anything. Paul said to the Galatians, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He said to the Philippians, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That I may gain Christ, be found in him. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. He's more important than anything. Anything. One man said it this way. He said, nothing is more important in all of history than Jesus Christ. Nothing should be more important in your life than to concentrate on Christ, who he is, what your relationship to him is. He is so important that he's the central theme of scripture, the supreme message of the church, and the solitary song of the soul. R.G. Lee said his name blossoms on the pages of history like the flowers of a thousand springtimes in one bouquet. His name sounds down the corridors of the centuries like the music of all choirs, visible and invisible, poured forth in one anthem. He is literature's loftiest ideal, philosophy's highest personality, criticism's supremest problem, theology's fundamental doctrine, spiritual religion's cardinal necessity. He is more important than anything. And so I wonder this morning, Friendship Bible Church, here it is, first day of 2012. Will you resolve with me that we will know nothing in 2012 but Christ and Him crucified? Will you resolve with me that in 2012, in every way we can think of, we will live as if Jesus is more important than anything. Will you resolve with me that in 2012 we will allow nothing, not jobs, not families, not anything, to distract us from our chief priority, our primary focus,
our main goal, which is Jesus Christ. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. I close with a song. Probably many of you have not heard it, but it puts it well. Now I resolve with all my heart, with all my powers to serve the Lord, nor from his precepts ere depart whose service is a rich reward. Be this the purpose of my soul, my solemn, my determined choice, to yield to his supreme control and in his kind commands rejoice. Oh, may I never faint nor tire, nor wandering leave his sacred ways. Great God, accept my soul's desire and give me strength to live thy praise.